Good morning. Let's uh, get our Bibles out. Open to the book of Jeremiah, uh, chapter 30. of uh, some time when we have gathered and I've had the opportunity to share, we've been going through the the prophet Jeremiah, and so we will uh, continue in that vein. Um, It's been a minute since we were together, and so what I'm going to kind of do is just very, very quickly just put a little context in front of us before we we launch into the chapter 30. If you were uh, around the last time we were together, we uh, quite literally sprinted uh, through five chapters uh, of Jeremiah. And um, mainly it's because I was sensing my own age and realizing that if I continued to go slowly and methodically, I would probably pass from the earth before we finish. So um, I tried to speed it up a little. Um, but as we, as we get going here, um, we've arrived at chapter 30. Uh, those who write commentaries and study uh, books of the Bible with many, many years of their life have identified chapters 30 through 33 as what they call the book of consolations. Um, if you've been paying attention to the theme that we've explored kind of at ad nauseum over the last several times we've been together, it's been a lot of heavy messages from Jeremiah, um, a lot of proclamations of God's um, disappointment and opposition to the sinfulness of his people. Uh, He was using Jeremiah as a voice of correction, as a voice of calling his people to a place of repentance. Um, Repeatedly throughout Jeremiah's life, he was um, just kind of beating on that drum over and over and over. And uh, the kingdom of uh, Israel was in decay and decline. And eventually they did not listen to Jeremiah's warnings and they did fall into uh, captivity, the Babylonian captivity, and you'll, you'll know if you know your Bible history that it was actually that wave of captivity that took Daniel uh, to Babylon. Uh, Ezekiel was a part of that captivity. He was escorted out and taken to Babylon. As uh, Pastor Scott a couple weeks ago correctly identified, Daniel in captivity read the work of Jeremiah and concluded that the 70 years was about to come to an end and that the people would return to the land. And so uh, just sort of a fascinating you know, idea that Daniel actually considered Jeremiah's prophecy the actual word of God when it was originally given. Um, he affirms that through his own understanding of, of what uh, Jeremiah had spoken. And so uh, again, over and over again, there was this uh, call of Jeremiah to the people of God to, to repent, to turn back to the Lord. Uh, they hardened their hearts repeatedly and refused to do so. And, uh, and so God brought his corrective action. We get to Jeremiah chapter 29, the last time we were together, we kind of finished up there. And, uh, you know, it's one of those really well-oft-quoted portions, Jeremiah 29, 11. Uh, it's probably on a coffee mug we have out in, the, out in the fellowship hall, quite frankly. You might be sewn onto your Bible cover. Uh, you might have it on uh, Christian merch. Um, but it, it pops up in a lot of places, and, and it's something that, uh, again, I'm not here to discredit. It's a, a tremendously hopeful uh, life-giving verse, right? Jeremiah 29, 11, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, 
to give you a future and a hope. And chapters 30 through 33 really expound upon this idea of the hope that God gives. And so in a lot of ways, my, my desire this morning is, is for us to nourish our faith through anchoring ourselves afresh in the reality of God. And uh, I want to I look at a particular attribute of God, actually, that I believe is so essential for us as we, as we live our Christian life today. So before we do that, I just want to uh, pray once again and just kind of center our hearts before the Lord. So God, we come this morning uh, just so refreshed by an opportunity to sing with your people. Uh, just really uh, speaking for myself, God, uh, sense the presence uh, in a way that was just really um, a blessing. Lord, you manifest yourself here among us as we gather in your name. Um, Lord, we are grateful. Uh, we're grateful, Lord, this morning because you're alive and you sit upon a throne over all of humanity, over history. Um, God, you are our rock and our foundation. I pray, Lord, as we open your word, you would nourish our faith. God, strengthen us for uh, our pilgrimage here until we uh, come home to be with you, Lord, either through uh, the taking up of the church or, Lord, through uh, just the natural progression of, of life. And so, God, we bring our hearts before you, ask that you'd center our minds. Lord, help us to focus upon your word and hear what you have to say to us, your church, this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. The future and a hope, the plans for welfare. There is a significant shift that occurs in the language of Jeremiah in chapters really picking up in 29:14 all the way through uh, 33 verse 26. Eight different times, I read out of the ESV, so eight different times in the ESV, uh, the idea of restoring the fortunes of the people, that actual phrase, the restoration, restore the fortunes or their fortunes, is used eight different times. It's really the theme of the next handful of chapters. And it's the, uh, really the proclamation and the fulfillment of what God said he was actually going to do with his people all the way back when he commissioned Jeremiah as a young man. If you remember in Jeremiah chapter 1, uh, the call of Jeremiah was so, sort of unique. When he was called into a life of being a prophet to the people, God said, hey, I'm going to call you to go declare this heavy message. And there was six kind of characteristics of his ministry. Four of them were destructive. You're going to tear down. You're going to uproot. Okay, that was the language of four of the six characteristics. The other two were constructive. You're going to plant and build up. So first, there was going to be a significant amount of heavy lifting as he chopped at the dead branches of just idolatrous, empty religion. Uh, there was carnality because people's lips, and they were all very religious on the outside, but inwardly, God would, coining Jesus' statement, your heart's far from me. There's, there's a lot of formalities here. You all look very religious, but the heart's not engaged. Uh, there was um, abuses in the government. There was uh, social decay, and there was just a general neglect in the hearts of God's people, in a, in, a, in a separation, in a distancing from God. So Jeremiah comes onto the scene. He's trying to attack a lot of those things and destroy them. And you use language like that, and it sounds a little harsh, but ultimately we have to realize that it's absolutely necessary. If we use any other profession that deals with health, if you have something within your body that's actually killing you, 
it's good practice for a medical provider to take aggressive action to try to get that thing out of you or treat it or deal with it, right? To acknowledge that it's killing you and to do nothing about it is really uh, not very loving at all, not very kind. And so God comes forcefully because uh, the spiritual death of his people was imminent. He was, he, he, God seeing this calls Jeremiah to speak to it. And so Jeremiah goes about uh, laying siege to all the idolatrous things of the people. Uh, God told Jeremiah the people were going to be very upset about it. If you've ever had to uh, correct somebody or bring a rebuke or a word that is hard, necessary, loving, the manner in which you speak is not harsh, but the thing you say ultimately is a hard thing. It's an unpleasant experience at times because the person you're speaking to may hold very tightly to the sin that's killing them. And so when you speak to the sin issue, they're put off by it and they react poorly. Well, that was Jeremiah's experience. (laughs) He spoke to the people and nobody liked him. He wasn't a national hero. He was a national villain. Uh, They were under attack. They were laid siege to. Jeremiah told them, hey, don't fight the enemy. Give up. Surrender. Uh, To try to step back and think about how that would be received by a nation, by people in government where some religious figure stands up and says, hey, we're under attack, it's a military conflict, and I think the solution that God has for us is just to surrender. You could imagine how that would be pretty unpopular. Uh, And so Jeremiah was looked at as a a really sort of a rogue religious figure. He was viewed negatively from a political perspective, and uh, he was treated as such. God told him this would happen right from the beginning. He said, I'm going to I'm going to stand with you and I'm going to give you the strength to endure it. But just know that this is going to be the sort of the manner and the nature of your call. So um, I, I, I was ordained many years ago. I've been to a few different ordination services. I've yet to hear a, a person get ordained under these contexts. Um, hey, we're going to make you a pastor and here's what it's going to look like. You're going to speak things to people lovingly. Everybody's going to hate you. Um, you're going to be pretty much a villain. Nobody's going to like you. Your podcast is going to have three followers. Your books are not going to sell. You're not going to have a really awesome YouTube channel. You're not going to have any celebrity status. Your own family is going to kind of disown you. Um, let's go do this. Thank you for being one of the few and faithful. Um, nobody says it. That may actually happen, but nobody actually says it at the ceremony. So anyway, uh, that's Jeremiah's uh, life and ministry. Uh, during his life and ministry, the people do actually finally fall into total captivity and they're taken out. We get to chapter 30 and um, Jeremiah is called by God to basically codify his messaging. So right, he was preaching, he was going out, he was giving sermons in the temple and different public places. And because there was an exile, God wanted the people to remember what was said. So he said, all right, Jeremiah, write this stuff down. Put it in a book. I want my people to remember the things I said to them. And there's sort of two fronts to this. One, it's really healthy for those who are brought into captivity to be reminded of why they got there. Causation matters, right? The consequences are important, but the cause of why there is a consequence is ultimately what matters. And God did not want them to lose sight of that. So there was a group of people who went into captivity and God's like, Jeremiah, I want you to write this stuff down and I want you to send it to them and I want them to read it there. And we know that they did because Daniel read it and then was like, aha, the, the discipline of a loving God has its confines and its purpose. Uh, Radio and I were talking, uh, it was Mackenzie's 11th birthday on Friday. Mackenzie's here in the front row. It's my daughter. Yeah. 
So we were just talking about being parents, being dads, and just how quickly it goes. And, um, you know, it's fascinating. As, as a parent, you have a responsibility to discipline your children because ultimately you want them to not have bad behavior, and mainly because you don't want to be frustrated. Um, and it can be irritating. And, um, and so you, you, address, you address things in your children's lives with, a, with an ultimate aim. A, a good, loving parent does take corrective action with the desire that their children would truly understand how to live life in a way that honors God. And so when you see behaviors or you know, issues, you address those things. And so there's an intentionality there is to shape the heart and the mind and cause there to be a correction towards a better way of living. God, our heavenly father, in the same way, exercises discipline in our Christian experience to shape and form our hearts and lives. And we know this because it tells us in the book of Hebrews that God, because he loves us, does discipline us. It is unloving not to discipline. That's the connection of scripture. It is unloving to not stand against that which is against God. That's unloving. It's to tolerate the thing that is killing somebody and act like that's okay. For a doctor to assess somebody has some sort of cancer in their body and to be like, well, you know, you've got cancer, but that's, you know, you got cancer. That's okay. I'm not going to do anything about it. I'm not going to suggest a treatment. I'm not going to perform a surgery. I'm just going to be like, hey, you got cancer. And then even then, maybe that feels a little uncomfortable, so you don't even want to broach, uh, you know, broach that subject, and so you just say or do nothing. That's unloving. We would think, what a terrible physician to not identify, see, and then, and then you know, having the knowledge, taking no action, right? So our loving Father in heaven uh, s- seeks to change uh, the heart and the mind through consequences. We've explored this at length. And ultimately, where I'm working to is this certain reality of uh, chapter 30. And, and in the first few verses, we see God now um, telling Jeremiah uh, these things. He said, the word that came to Jeremiah, verse 1, from the Lord. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel. Write in a book all the words that I have spoken to you. For behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. Israel and Judah, says the Lord, and I will bring them back to the land that I gave to their fathers, and they shall take possession of it. And before we explore the balance of the chapter, um, that phrase, restore the fortunes of my people again, that's what shifts the tone of these next uh, handful of chapters. This is God declaring that which he is going to do. Jeremiah did not live to see the day. Jeremiah didn't see the fulfillment of these things. He didn't see the 70-year captivity concluded, and he didn't see uh, Ezra and Nehemiah coming back with a band of, of former captives to rebuild the city and the temple. But he wrote these things in confidence of the one who had spoken them to him. And there is an attribute of God that I believe is actually at the heart of the substance of this portion of, of Jeremiah's message. And I believe it's what uh, has just been impressed on my, my own mind this entire week. It's a word we use, it's called the immutability of God. The immutability of God. Immutability is really a fancy way of saying God never changes. In fact, it's impossible for God to change. If you uh, read any kind of um, 
systematic theology, or if you have one as a reference on your, on your shelf in your, in your Bible library, uh, Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology is a really, really good one. I recommend it to you if you don't have it. It's a great resource as you're studying through the Word of God. Wayne Grudem defines the immutability of God this way, and I, and I quote Wayne Grudem here. He says, we can define the unchangeableness of God as follows. God is unchanging in his being, perfections, purposes, and promises. Yet God does act and feel emotions. And he acts and feels differently in response to different situations. The attribute of God is also called, or this attribute of God is also called God's immutability. God cannot change. It is impossible for God to change. You may have probably jumped into your head since it wasn't super long ago that we studied through the book of Hebrews with Pastor Scott. There's that famous passage where Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever, it evokes the idea of the unchangeableness of God. Why is this so substantial? Why is this even important? You probably didn't come here thinking we we're going to talk about the word immutability. Quite frankly, I didn't think I was going to be talking about the word of immutability. But yet I think it's actually uh, central to an understanding and a deep appreciation of what Jeremiah is doing here. If we work out this idea, if we, if we are understanding of this uh, truth, uh, I think first I, I'd like to just establish that I'm not making this word up and Wayne Gruden didn't just write that to justify his fancy degree that he probably got at a really good seminary. Uh, it's actually just a conclusion of what the Bible says. So if you would, I'm going to actually walk through a handful of scriptures that uh, I believe give us um, a tremendous amount of confidence in this statement. If you uh, hop with me back to Numbers chapter 23. Numbers 23. I'm just going to key on a few verses. And um, again, my desire is to first start with this is what God's word says. This is what God declares. And then we're going to conclude that. So Numbers chapter 23, anybody know the story of Balaam? Anybody familiar with Balaam? Anybody familiar with the talking donkey? Everyone's like, yes, that's Balaam, all right? Balaam was a for-hire prophet, basically. He, he, got, he got bought out. He was a hireling. He's not a good dude, by the way. He was, he was paid off by an enemy of the people of God, to declare a curse against the people of God. So this other king starts to get a little intimidated. He's like, hey, Balaam, you seem like you know some stuff about religion. I'll pay you a bunch of money. Say some, say some horrible things about them and, and you know, basically curse them. Balaam, uh, not to get into the weeds here, but basically is like, hey, I'll say whatever God tells me to say, but thanks for the paycheck. <laughs> so he takes the money. And uh, he goes about now, and uh, in chapter 23, starting in verse uh, 18, it says, And Balaam took up his discourse and said, Rise, Balak, and hear, give ear to me, O son of De uh, Zippor. So Balak is the king who hired him. Remember, he was hired to curse God's people. And this is what Balaam actually says. Verse 19, God is not man that he should lie, or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, and will he not fulfill it? 
want you to meditate on that for a minute. 23, Numbers 23, 19. God is not man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said, will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Hold that thought. Hop over to one of the uh, other minor prophets, Malachi chapter 3. This is where those with the electronic phone are like, yes, my electronic Bible will find that for me. Malachi chapter 3. Basically, just find the middle of your Bible between the Old and New Testament. And Malachi is the last book of the New Te- Old Testament. So, Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Hold that thought, right? For I, the Lord, do not change. Numbers chapter 23, 19, which we read earlier. The prophet declaring the nature and character of God says, God is not like a man. He cannot lie. He does not change his mind. When he says it, he does it. When he promises it, he keeps his promise. The contrast between the nature of God and the nature of man is the distinction. Man changes. People change. In fact, it's the grace of God that we can change. But God is not the one who changes. In fact, God never changes. It is impossible for God to change. He says, for I, the Lord, Malachi 3, 6, for I, the Lord, do not change. I do not change. God says this, I do not change. When I say something, God declares, when I say something, I will fulfill it. When I promise it, I will keep my promise. I cannot, and I will not, and I do not change. It's impossible for God to change. Go to James chapter 1. You probably know this one. As we were acknowledging the things we were grateful for in our life earlier, reflecting on perhaps relationships, things, just God's, rela- God's work in your life. James 1.17 Every good and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. The writer saying that all good things come down from the Father of lights, and he's saying, and that will never change because God can never change. Therefore, the good things we experience are always from God. They're, they're, they're from Him. There's no, other, there's no other source, and there's also no... Uh, opportunity or no possibility of God not being good or God not giving good gifts because God cannot change. And then lastly, go to Revelation 1.8. Pretty famous verse, you probably know this one. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come the Almighty. And he kind of repeats that refrain actually at the the end of Revelation in chapter 22, verse 13, when he says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. God is the same yesterday, today, forever, Hebrews 13. God cannot change. God cannot lie. That which he says he will fulfill. 
This is the sum and the substance of the immutability of God. It's actually the anchor for our faith, and it's the root of our hope. If this is not true, then we have to think just very simply about three possibilities. If God can change, then there's only three things that can happen here. Either God can go from bad to good, from good to bad, or be something different altogether. If God can progress in his goodness, then we have a problem because that means at some point in history past or in some point in history or time future, God will be better, good, or greater than he is at any given moment. So God can't progress towards better or greater goodness. He's either all good all the time or he's not good at all. So God cannot change in that regard. And if he did, think about the horrors of our faith. Think about how unstable our faith would be, how destabilized our life would be if at any given moment God's reaction to his own stated intention could shift or change. If our hope of forgiveness is never sure, if God has said there is no other name under heaven by which man can be saved, right? Acts chapter two, that statement is unequivocally true all the time. But if God can change, then how do we know that that's true? If God has declared a certain thing and yet he himself is um, not consistent to it, then we actually don't have any certainty. And so when Jeremiah writes what he wrote, you can flip back to Jeremiah, when he wrote this in chapter 30, for behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will restore the fortunes of my people. The I will statement of that verse is the most important part, in my opinion, because of who said it. Because it's the same God who declared this, who earlier in Jeremiah's ministry declared that he would oppose them for their sinfulness and their unrepentant, consistent, deliberate denial of his truth. To the same degree that God will position himself as opposing the proud, which is exactly what he says in 1 Peter chapter 5, God resists and opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. That is always true. The same God who we have read about in Genesis, his attitude towards the sinfulness of man has not changed. Do we recognize this as a certainty? God has not changed. The sin that provoked, if you will, the reaction of God is not an inconsistency with who God is. It is an expression of God's always true character about sin. When God in the Old Testament calls a people to repentance, he is consistent in how he deals with those individuals. Those who, by the grace of God, yield and repent, always experience God's forgiveness. Always. Think about Jonah. Go to these people of Nineveh and declare the word of the Lord. Of course, we know Jonah, the reluctant prophet, didn't want to go. God finds him first-class travel, gets spit up on the shore. Jonah, some of you were like, didn't, you, you appreciate that? Thanks, Ray. Um, the kids in the front row, they locked down the Jonah story. They know this one. First-class travel. He goes and he declares. 
And he actually, interestingly enough, he's like, God, I already know that if I, if I declare this word to these people, they will turn and you will forgive them. He didn't want to go because he didn't want to see his enemies given mercy. Isn't that fascinating? Jonah grasped the immutability of God. He knew. God, you've said it. You will do it. God, this is your character and it's never going to change. You're no respecter of persons. And so the same God who told Jeremiah that he was opposed to the empty religion of his people is the same God now who says, I will restore. I will bring them back. If you're taking parenting notes, this is a lot like parenting in a way. You do hold the line on what's true and right. And you also, after you know, disciplining if necessary, providing, giving consequences, wherever the case may be, um, I think a godly parent also then is in position to restore, to put their arm around that kid, give them a hug, show them the love, let them know, hey, change, repentance, those are all God's grace. Now let's restore fellowship. Let's go the right way, right? Jesus in his treatment of the woman caught in adultery, he's like, hey, go and sin no more, right? I'm not going to judge you. Go and sin no more, right? That's parenting. You're redirecting. That's how God deals with his children. The last several messages, uh, quite frankly, I sprinted through the last bit of Jeremiah because I just wanted to get to something a little bit more hopeful Um, because as certain as God resists our pride and as certain as he is entrenched against our own sin, God is also committed to restoring the fortunes of his people. Now, this is true, obviously, in the immediate context of God's treatment of his own, right? This is speaking directly and specifically to God's people, Israel. We know that God does indeed bring them back into the land 70 years later through Ezra and Nehemiah. We know that this is true in that immediate context. We know it will ultimately be true, as we're uh, recently uh, touched on, Uh, through the uh, prophetic that God will ultimately restore his people in a very very significant way as a part of his um, dealings with mankind and the promises and the commitments that he's made to them. Uh, And so this is at the heart of it all. And, and so we're going to go, go through a couple little things here. Uh, we'll go through chapter 30. There's kind of two, two uh, groupings, if you will, of verses, uh, verses five through 11 is really uh, Jeremiah just reflecting on the current predicament, the immediate lived experience of these people and uh, recognizing uh, exactly what they were going through and then how God uh, is going to turn their fortunes. And so he uses analogy there, uh, 12 through 17, similarly, uh, and then we'll kind of see how, how, how we're doing. So verse five, these are the words that Jeremiah pens, uh, again, to give a concrete and certain hope to those who would be in the exile. He says, these are the words that the Lord spoke concerning Israel and Judah. Verse five, thus says the Lord, we have heard a cry of panic, of terror and no peace. Ask now and see, can a man bear a child? Why then do I see every man with his hands on his stomach like a woman in labor? Why has every face turned pale? Alas, that day is so great, there is none like it. It is a time of distress for Jacob, yet he shall be saved out of it. Um, So verses five and six, you're like, well, this doesn't seem very hopeful, uh, pastor. It sounds kind of bad. Dudes holding their uh, stomachs like a woman in labor. Uh, God bless my wife. She, she has, uh, delivered four children. I can tell you, um, 
that picture is very real for me. Uh, it doesn't look very comfortable, um, very painful. And so these guys are holding their stomachs. Literally, they are gripped and racked uh, with fear and pain. Their anxiety has reached a tipping point. We know this historically because as they were being sieged prior to going into final captivity, uh, the, the people of Israel were surrounded by a much superior military force. And so the military guys were just freaking out. They're literally like their stomachs were set on edge. They were in total pain, panic. Uh, the fear of conflict with a superior force was uh, basically eating them up. And Jeremiah is acknowledging that as a certain reality. He's like, yes, the, the, the measured discipline of God is bringing this about. Verse 7 hinges on, yet he shall be saved out of it. Verse 8, and it shall come to pass in that day, declares the Lord of hosts that I will break his, his yoke from off your neck and I will burst your bonds and foreigners shall no more make a servant of him, but they shall serve the Lord their God and David their king, whom I will raise up for them. He's acknowledging the present reality and then he's pointing the people towards the certainty of what God will do. And he's saying, hey, right now, it's looking bad, acknowledged, noted, but God will, it shall come to pass. And so he said, God will do these things. And in the short run, God did. 70 years later, he brought them back. Uh, the ultimate fulfillment of the promises he made to David uh, and, to the, um, and to the people of Israel are yet to be fully fulfilled, but that's for a whole other uh, time. So then, verse 10, the fe Then fear not, O Jacob, my servant, declares the Lord, nor be dismayed, O Israel, for behold, I will save you from far away and your offspring from the land of their captivity. Jacob shall return and have quiet and ease, and none shall make him afraid. For I am with you to save you, declares the Lord. I will make a full end of all the nations among whom I scattered you, but of you I will not make a full end. I will discipline you in just measure, and I will by no means leave you unpunished. And this is really the heart of, of Jeremiah's ministry. He was declaring the just measure of God's discipline against a people unwilling to repent, and at the same time declaring the ultimate hope of what would come as God fulfills his purpose in doing those things. So painting a picture, showing the turn, 12 through 17, similarly, for thus says the Lord, your hurt is incurable and your wound is grievous. There is none to uphold your cause, no medicine for your wound, no healing for you. And Jeremiah is speaking to the present condition. Remember, this was going to be read by those taken into captivity. And so Jeremiah didn't want them to forget the root causes of what led them into that situation. All your lovers have forgotten you. They care nothing for you. For I have dealt you the blow of an enemy, the punishment of a merciless foe, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. Why do you cry out over your hurt? Your pain is incurable, because your guilt is great, because your sins are flagrant. I have done these things to you. God declaring the actual connection. Your unwillingness to repent brought about this consequence. He's connecting the dots. He's like, look, this is the reality. <laughs> you were unwilling. And so this happened. And you'll, uh, you can trace that out throughout the entirety of Jeremiah's message. Verse 16, therefore, all who devour you shall be devoured and all your foes, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall be plundered and all who prey on you, I will make a prey for I will restore health to you. In your wounds I will heal, declares the Lord, because they have called you an outcast, 
it is Zion for whom no one cares. Thus says the Lord, behold, notice again, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob and have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I will multiply them and they shall not be few. I will make them honored and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old and their congregation shall be established before me and I will punish all who oppress them. Verse 21, the prince shall be one of themselves. The ruler shall come out from their midst. I will make him draw near and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord. And you shall be my people and I will be your God. I love the imagery that is brought out by Jeremiah as he is speaking this in advance of its fulfillment. He has put this out there in total confidence of what God has said. And he's anticipating what will be before it's come to pass. Verse 19, right? Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving. It was awesome as we were given the opportunity by Pastor Eric to just reflect on things that we're thankful for together and to allow that to sort of just bounce around the room as you could hear the voices of, uh, we could hear each other's voices just reflecting on the things we're thankful for. Their songs of thanksgiving, the voices of those who celebrate. Um, what, a, what a beautiful picture of those brought through the chastening, the refining, the corrective work of God, and then the maturity that's brought out in the end, and there's a sense of celebration, a sense of joy, a sense of refreshment. God will do that work in his people in this context. And that's kind of really the heart, I think, of what um, I would have us to meditate on this morning. I think what God would want us to meditate on is how God works in this same way in our lives. We desire, I think, in a lot of cases, at least for those of you who I get to talk to more regularly, there's a desire for spiritual growth in our lives, a desire for spiritual maturity, a desire to be closer to God, to be walking uprightly with him by and large. And I have just thought a lot about how God does work in in our lives in such a way where uh, we will go through seasons where God will allow hardship. We'll go through seasons where God's uh, sort of stance in our life could be in a sense, we, we don't believe, like you don't, you don't sense that God is quote unquote uh, for you, although that's always true. The way he's interacting with you, the way he's dealing with you can feel um, corrective. And God's doing that because he loves you and he loves me. Uh, there's times where God will spotlight an area of sin in our life through, uh, could be born out of just direct communion with God. And you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit as you're reading his word and you're like, wow. That's an area I got to address. It could come from sitting in church and the pastor says something and you're just, boom, the Holy Spirit hits you in the heart. And you're like, wow, that's in the, come from just fellowship, hanging out with God's people. And you're like, oh, somebody says something or just through life together, you discover there's areas of your life where um, you've got to make some different choices. That's God's grace. It's God's mercy. It's God's work in your life and in my life. It can come through a spouse. It can come through a brother or sister in Christ. Um, But nonetheless, it's all intended to bring about the restoration of a right relationship. God's ultimately most concerned with his people's relationship with him. 
And so he's desiring that shift and that change in them. And he's acknowledging what is. He's not sugarcoating it. He's not denying it. He's not like sweeping it under the rug and pretending it's not a thing for the sense of sort of a false peace. But over the last multiples and multiples of chapters and through years and years and years of Jeremiah's life, God has consistently communicated the call to uh, experience change, to experience transformation. And that's the hope and the beauty of our lived experience in the Christian life. We can experience change. It's the hope of the gospel. It's the fulfillment of what we see ultimately pointing us towards in that uh, in the New Testament context, as we think about our personal relationship with God, we have certain things that are, that are, are, are concrete, they're foundational. It's the rock under our feet. The, the, uh, the types of God in the, in the Bible, um, he's often referred to as a rock. There's a stability, there's a foundationalness, there's a sense of no change, it's established. And that's what I'm pointing us towards here this morning. God has made himself clear. He's made himself clear through the word of God. He's made himself clear over how he views sin and over his call to how we should react when our sin is exposed. God has made it clear that our only reaction should be of humility and repentance and a coming back into a right relationship with him. The refusal to do so is going to receive consistent grace as God reaches out with correction over and over. And I don't have the uh, clarity, and I don't think anybody ever does, of how much grace God extends a person or a people or a nation. It's not for me to know. It's not for any of us to know. I just know that today is the day of salvation. When God puts the word out and there's conviction in the heart, that is the specific moment where opportunity to respond is present. The tomorrow is never guaranteed. Our life is but a vapor. There's, there's so, there, it, it passes so quickly. And so to delay is risky at best. So respond. Come back. The heart of God is to restore. He's a God of restoration. He's a God who desires to bring his people back to himself. And he's not going to microwave the process. 70 years of captivity is a long time. That's a couple generations of his people. It wasn't a quick fix. It wasn't a band-aid. It wasn't a glossing over. It was a measured, as we saw there in Jeremiah 30, Verse 11, I will discipline you in just measure. God knew the bounds. He knew the starting and the ending. He knew the intention and the purpose for it. And it was unwavering in his commitment to it. He never deviated from the plan that he had put into motion. Not once. God is immutable. He cannot change. He resists the proud. He gives grace to the humble, always, at all times. When we seek forgiveness, we come on the basis of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There is acceptance before his throne, always, without wavering. When we come, God, I'm sorry. There's never a moment where we doubt that God will not forgive. He, there's, there is doubt in us, which is why Hebrew writer says, come boldly to the throne of grace. Why do I need boldness? Because I'm afraid of God? No, because I doubt myself 
within my own fallen state to think, man, this is the last time, surely, that God's mercy will be extended to me. I must have exhausted the supply of his grace and forgiveness. Surely, once again, if I come with this failure, this shortcoming, this sin, God will just be like, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. That's what I go through sometimes in my own mind when I wrestle with my own failings, my own shortcomings. But God is not the one who changes. You uh, probably know, but Jeremiah also wrote the book of Lamentations, which is the lament over the fall of Jerusalem. There is at the very center of that book a verse that you are probably really, really familiar with. Um, It's produced great hymns. It's currently on the chalkboard in our house. We reflect on it. Lamentations 3.22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Jeremiah wrote that during the lament of the destruction of Jerusalem as the people were taken into captivity and the land was desolate and it looked as though it was hopeless. He wrote that. That's what he was inspired to pen and he could put that on paper and he could have that be inspired by the Holy Spirit and there for us to be encouraged with forever and ever because of the context by which that was written. It was written in a moment of great despair as hardship and, and all sorts of things had happened in the history of the people. And Jeremiah lamenting this thing, yet holding fast to this truth, that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. How can he hold that? Because here's what's true. God never changes, but our circumstances often do. You're going to go through the highs and the lows of life. You're going to experience adversity. You're going to experience all sorts of troubles in life. It's not promised that you're going to, sm- you know, come through unscathed. This world has fallen. Your experience in it is not always going to be great. You're going to have moments where it's going to seem like all hope is lost. You're going to be in a place that you didn't want to be, like the exiles who are going to read this, Jeremiah chapter 30. I don't know if they actually use chapters. I highly doubt it. They're going to read this from Jeremiah in captivity. That's not where they want to be. It was not an enjoyable experience. They were being literally oppressed. They had been taken captive and their city had been decimated. And they're going to read this and they're going to have an opportunity to hold on to something that actually moves beyond and extends beyond the immediate horizon of their circumstance. And it's rooted in something beyond the moment, beyond their experience. It's rooted in the immutability and the unchangeableness of God. And they're holding on to this. Why can they believe that their fortunes will be restored in 70 years? Why can they believe that? Because God said it. And he's not a man. He doesn't change his mind. He doesn't come up short. He doesn't get 35 years into the promise and go, you know what? This ain't worth it. I'm just going to cut it short. I'm done with you guys. Enjoy Babylon. I'm going to start afresh. Doesn't do that. He doesn't get to 45 years and be like, eh, that last generation was probably our best hope. This new crop of incoming freshmen. Eesh. Yikes. Some of you are like waking up on that one. God says, I will not change. When he says it, it comes to pass. 
The difficulty is in the moment we don't always see it coming to pass. We see our immediate circumstance. Try to imagine that you're in exile. You just had your home destroyed. You just had your city destroyed. You're now sitting in a land that you don't want to be with the people you really don't want to be with. You've lost your freedoms. You lost your opportunities. You're in a pretty bad way. And you're given the opportunity in that moment to hold on to something that extends possibly beyond your own horizon of your life. Jeremiah believed it. He wrote it. He put it to pen, to paper. And he said, I'm going to write these things in a book because I want my people to know that God is faithful. His love is steadfast. It's unwavering. God's commitment to his own is unwavering. If you're a child of God this morning, if you have been, if you have been bought back from the captivity of sin through the blood that was shed by Jesus Christ, and you've put your faith in that, and you're like, God, I know that I was far from you and I couldn't save myself. I unequivocally threw myself upon your mercy and I asked for your forgiveness and for your reconciliation and you gave it to me. If you're one of God's own, Jesus' words were, I will never leave you or forsake you. Now you may feel that God has left you or forsaken you. Your present circumstance may suggest that God has left you and forsaken you. Certainly they would have thought that at their lived experience. But that's precisely why the writer to Hebrews says that we have to hold fast to our faith. We have to hold fast to the things that are anchoring our hope. It's not a blind roll of the dice. This isn't like playing the lottery kind of hope. Some people think, I hope this is true. I hope Christianity is true. I I hope. It's sort of like a blind, unreasoned, sort of wild, just shot in the dark of, I hope I win. This is not that kind of hope. This is the kind of hope rooted in a concrete certainty about the one who's made these statements and these declarations. And so my, my desire and my prayer is that as we are here this morning, just sitting here with God's word, thinking about the context of how we got to chapter 30, thinking about the people who would be reading this, the people who are hearing echoed in their mind the words that Jeremiah had warned, they refused the warning, they experienced the consequence, and now there is also something to be held on to. That God is merciful and that his mercy is new every morning. There is an inexhaustible supply of the grace of God. Romans tells us that where sin abounds, grace much more abounds. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Nothing can. The unsearchable depths of God have made it plain and clear that when he says it, he'll do it. You, if you've been going to the life group on Tuesdays, you've read that God has begun a good work. You think he's going to finish it? You're going to come out half-baked? Sort of like a, sort of like a cyborg Christian in heaven, like sort of bionic and then a little bit like actually finished? Um, No, he's going to complete the work. He's going to bring it to completion. There's hope and certainty, not in us, but in him. There's something to be thankful for, not because your present circumstance is necessarily the best. It's because you've got a God who is absolutely unchanging. And that's the greatest hope I can offer you. It's the thing that I can wake up to in the morning and my my moment by moment experience can just be all over the map of good to bad and everything in between. But there is 
an unchanging reality that God remains steadfast and true. His love for his people will not be broken. His covenants and promises that he's made, he will not abandon. God will not cease to be faithful. He will not cease to be forgiving. He will not cease to be merciful. And so for you and I, we only have basic responses to this. One, I hope it is a shot in the arm to your faith to remember who your God is. He's immutable and unchanging. You're going to go home for Thanksgiving, many of you. Some of you might stick around, but your life's going to continue to go forward until the end of time or until you go meet Jesus face to face. There's one thing that's going to be always true. Your kids are going to grow up and they're going to leave the house. Your, your relationships are going to shift and change. You yourself will shift and change. I turned 40 this year. I'm not as fast as I used to be, and I wasn't fast to begin with. It takes me a lot longer to do the things I used to do athletically. I don't even try anymore. I just let the kids run, and I just drive. That's the benefit. It's like, you're fast. I got a car, and I got some money. Um, You know, David wrote about this, King David. He's like, I was young, now I'm old. I've never seen the righteous forsaken. I've never seen them begging bread. There's a certain benefit to getting old because you have more time to reflect upon things that are always true. And you start to realize that they're just always true. When you're young, you might not have enough experience to know that. And so you're kind of wondering, well, will this still be true when I'm 40? Like that old man in Ithaca that talked to me about this the day before thanks, weekend before Thanksgiving when I just wanted him to stop. It is true. The steadfast love of the Lord will never cease and his mercies will never. I want you to think about the word never and find an exception to the word never. I want you to find an exception to the word always. Find me a time outside of always. Find me a time outside of never. How many mornings are they new? Every morning. You're going to wake up tomorrow and God's mercies are going to be new for you and me. And the same God who never sleeps and never slumbers, he never gets tired, he never ages, he never forgets, he never recollects uh, the sin that he has chosen to forget. He casts them as far as the east is from the west. He's not going to wake up one morning and say, my covenant to my people has come to an end. I've decided to end it. That is never going to happen for you and me. The work of God in our life is so secure because God is immutable. And to remind you, that means that God is unchanging in his being, his perfections, his purposes, and his promises. God's not done with you. God's not abandoned you. God has not forsaken you. He may be disciplining you. He may be correcting you. He may be allowing adversity to refine you, but he's not done with you. He is still committed. And so if I could leave you with a parting thought, it's kind of one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible, actually. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. Paul wrote this very lengthy defense of the gospel, rooting it in the certainty of historical truth. Then he talks about the implications of it. He's like, because these things are true, therefore we conclude, and he comes to this final sort of outcome of all these certainties and all these truths about 
what Jesus has accomplished through his death and his resurrection. He says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. Abound, be immovable, be steadfast. God is not mocked. That which you sow, you will reap. You will reap. God has seen fit. And so guys, uh, let's stand together. Let's pray and just ask God to establish our hearts and um, to walk uprightly before him. I pray that your faith has been encouraged. Hold fast to who God is. There's a famous line, well, maybe not famous because it was written like 225 years ago, uh, but there's a hymn written by Charles Wesley. Um, the last line of the hymn is, and all things as they change proclaim the Lord eternally the same. God, that is so true. Seasons change, right? This is a season of all of our lives. We're in the Thanksgiving season. The season's going to come. It's going to go. Lord, it's cold now. The weather changes. We change. People change. People fail us. People can disappoint us. Relationships can fracture and break apart. Nations rise. Nations fall. God, you remain the same. Lord, by contrast of all that you have created, you are eternally the same. Lord, how we are so thankful that your love is steadfast, that you're a good God and not evil. Lord, you're never going to be anything other than what you are, and what you are is eternally good, gracious, long-suffering, yet also holy and righteous. And so, Lord, we anchor our life and our hopes in you. God, I pray that you would nourish our faith in these things. God, as we go into the world, Lord, as we live the lives that you've called us to, Lord, let us go with confidence knowing that you are the rock. Lord, our hopes are all in you. You cannot fail. Your purposes will come to pass. Your promises will be fulfilled. Your covenant will be accomplished. You will gather all those who are yours to yourself. And so, Lord, we can declare how great you are. Lord, bless us, your people, this week as we travel, as we celebrate. Um, Lord, let us be rooted uh, in these truths, holding fast to the end. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.